Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us here uh, for this event uh, at the uh, Fairbanks Center. Uh, I'm Michael Sony. I have the honor and privilege of being the director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies here at Harvard. Um, we are, uh, as all of you know, and I suspect that's one of the reasons you are here, we are in a time of transition. Today marks uh, the 320th day of the Trump presidency. Uh, it is also uh, the 50th day of uh, uh, the 50th day of the new era of socialism with Chinese characteristics, at least judging from the date of its announcement at the 19th Party Congress uh, by Xi Jinping. In some ways, uh, developments uh, have been less dramatic uh, in this period of transition than we might have expected at the beginning of this transition period uh, in the pre, uh, post-election, um, uh, pre-inauguration weeks and months. Uh, I think observers could reasonably have been concerned about uh, the possibility of a um, trade war between China and the United States. We could certainly have uh, been reasonably concerned about uh, a dramatic change in uh, the United States relationships, relationship with Taiwan uh, after Trump's uh, call to Tsai Ing-wen. And uh, that, of course, would have had an enormous uh, uh, impact on the US-China relationship. So although the changes over the last uh, year have been uh, perhaps less dramatic than we might have feared, uh, it's certainly the case that there are what we might call tectonic changes going on in the world's most important bilateral relationship. Because the US-China relationship is so important, it would be worth talking about it. It would be worth exploring questions in US foreign policy towards China, even in the absence of te such tectonic shifts. The US-China relationship is, of course, uh, crucial to so many of the world's pressing problems, uh, both the immediate uh, uh, and alarming the North Korean situation, for example, and the much longer term issues like climate change and the health of the global economy. So that was what uh, inspired us to try to put together today's uh, event on US foreign policy, Trump and China. Uh, the event is co-sponsored by the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies and the Ash Center for Dem Democratic Governance and Innovation. Uh, at the Kennedy School. I'd like to thank quickly the, the staffs of the two uh, institutes for their hard work putting this event together. Uh, it, uh, the event also fits very much into the Fairbank Center's uh, current priority to contribute more and more effectively to public discourse uh, and the public conversation about China. And with that in mind, I hope you will uh, indulge me for just one moment to announce the publication of The China Questions, uh, 38 uh, essays by uh, faculty uh, associated with the Fairbanks Center, uh, critical insights into a rising power. These are wonderful uh, essays. I would say that even if I wasn't the co-editor. Uh, wonderful essays that distill, in many cases, a lifetime of scholarship and research into pressing questions of the day uh, uh, into essays on pressing questions of the day that are accessible uh, to a non-scholarly audience. 
the book is available from HUP as of this week, and it should be purchasable on Amazon in a week or two. Uh, but of course, that's not why you're here. Let me uh, move quickly to the main event. Uh, I'll make very quick introductions. Um, those of you who, who have been to Fairbanks Center events know that my introductions are very brief because you're not here to listen to me make introductions. Doesn't indicate a lack of respect and appreciation to our speakers. Um, our uh, uh, main speaker at today's event is Professor and Ambassador Nicholas Burns. Roy and Barbara Goodman, family professor of the practice of diplomacy and international relations at the Kennedy School. Uh, he, uh, Nick Burns spent uh, 27 years uh, in the service of his country uh, in the Foreign Service uh, as uh, ambassador to Greece, uh, as US ambassador to NATO, uh, and from 2005 to 2008 as undersecretary of state for political affairs. Uh, he was also, although I don't, I hope it will not hijack today's conversation, he also served in the American Consulate General in Jerusalem, uh, a period which I imagine he is thinking about again uh, in these days. Um, Professor Burns will speak for about 20 minutes, and then I'll invite our other three panelists, who I'll introduce in a moment, to offer brief comments in response, and we'll then move to a moderated discussion for about a half an hour or so, and if time permits, uh, we'll move to questions from the floor. Um, the the uh, discussants today are uh, a, a, an all-star lineup uh, of commentators uh, from the Harvard community. Uh, let me first of all introduce Ezra Vogel, uh, the Henry Ford II Professor of Social Sciences Emeritus at Harvard. Uh, Professor Vogel uh, taught at Harvard from 1964 until his retirement in 2000 and continues to be very, very active, uh, actively involved in our community here. Um, he will, uh, he's, he's had many honors and written many books. I'll mention just two. Uh, he served as director of the Fairbanks Center uh, twice, uh, and uh, uh, also is the author of, as I said, I'll, I'll single out two books. First of all, Japan uh, as number one, Lessons for America, which remains to this day, we believe, the best-selling work in Japan by a non-Japanese author. Um, and I don't know if the same honor is true in China for his Deng Xiaoping biography, but I bet it's, I bet it's pretty close. Um, uh, and uh, I will also mention just one more point about uh, Ezra's career, which was that he also served more briefly than Ambassador Burns in government from 1993 to 1995. Uh, he served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. Uh, Jiang Ribaum is a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She works on the political economy of administrative reform particularly as it relates to issues of accountability, transparency, and public participation in policy development in East Asia. Uh, and her book, Responsive Democracy, Increasing State Accountability in East Asia, was published in 2011. Uh, finally, or third, not finally, last but not least, uh, Arna Westad, uh, S.T. Lee <laughs> Professor of U.S.-Asia Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, he joined the Kennedy School in uh, 2015, uh, having spent uh, a, a long period early in his career at the London School of Economics. He's the author also of multiple books. I will mention just two of them, The Global Cold War, Third World Interventions, and the Making of Our Times, which won the very prestigious uh, Bancroft Prize. 
His latest book, which has just come out, is The Cold War, A World History. Despite, if you'll forgive me, Arna, a regrettable lack of attention to the important issue of Kamoi and Matsu in the global Cold War, uh, it's still uh, it's, it's, it's on my uh, holiday reading list, and I, I recommend that, uh, that you all uh, uh, look as well. So without further ado, uh, please join me in uh, welcoming Ambassador Professor Burns. Thank you. Professor Sony, thank you very much uh, for that warm welcome. Uh, here to the Fairbanks Center. Um, thank you, and thanks to the Ash Center from our very own Kennedy School of Government. I am here with genuine humility in talking about the U.S.-China relationship alongside Professor Ezra Vogel, who is a giant in the field, and Professor Arnie Westad, and Professor Jiang Ri Baum. I can assure you that individually and collectively, their knowledge, wisdom, and insight exceeds mine by a factor of at least a million. <laughs> so I did wonder, why me? Um, maybe because I did serve in the American uh, Foreign Service, as Professor Sony said, for 27 years. That is part of my responsibilities as Undersecretary of State. I spent a lot of time thinking about our relationship with China and Japan and India, those three vital partners of the United States, uh, one an ally of the United States in East Asia. So the task this morning is to, for me to say a few words about how we should view President Trump's visit to Beijing, his first big visit uh, to Beijing. But before I do, I wanted to say one word because it provides some historical backdrop about December 7th, 1941. This is the 76th anniversary of the Japanese attack on the United States. And for my parents' generation, for many of us born after the Second World War, this was the seminal event. This was the generation that went through the Great Depression. And then through the Second World War, my father served in the US Marine Corps during that war. Why is it important to remember it? Well, we have to have a sense of history in our country. On the 76th anniversary, I think we can say with certainty that that Japanese attack ended the infamous America First movement of 1939, 40, and 41 on this college campus and at Yale and at Princeton and at NYU, young Americans saying, we have no responsibility for the rest of the world. We don't have to be engaged globally. We don't have to respond to an urgent moral crisis, the rise of Nazism, the rise of fascism in Italy, the rise of Imperial Japan and its acquisitive general staff. That's not our responsibility. FDR tried to fend them off. It's very difficult with an isolationist Congress. Does any of this ring a bell about the politics of 2017? <laughs> Thank goodness that reason prevailed in Americans, our president, but our people decided that we had to wade into the Second World War on behalf of Britain and France, but also on behalf of China, a China that had been occupied in 1931, 1937. Horrendous human rights 
atrocities committed by the Japanese military against the Chinese people, the carving up of the country, the near extinction of the country during that war. We became an ally of a different China, a nationalist China, but it does provide some backdrop to the relationship that we have today. It also catapulted us, December 7th, 1941, psychologically and materially into understanding that given the size of our economy, the size of our country, the immigrant nature of it, the geopolitical positioning of the United States, we are a global power. And December 7th, 1941 was our wake-up call, that we can't disavow that status. And may we learn those lessons, because the isolationist gene is buried deep into us. May we continue to learn those lessons when isolationists begin to rise again in American politics. That's my mini-sermon. Forgive me for that <laughs> sermon. What does President Trump's visit to Beijing tell us about the U.S.-China relationship at the end of 2017? What does it indicate about the President's views towards President Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership? Okay, I'm being asked to sit because this microphone is not translating into these microphones, so I'm going to sit. <laughs> and we'll just transfer... So you missed the sermon. <laughs> so what does President Trump's, uh, Trump's trip to Beijing tell us about the state of U.S.-China relations at the end of 2017, the president's own view about his partner, Xi Jinping, and about the U.S.-China relationship, and what's the road ahead in 2018? First, there's a lot of continuity that one might not have expected uh, 365 days ago during the transition. There's a recognition, on, in my judgment, on the part of the Trump administration that the single most important bilateral relationship that we have in the world is with China and will continue to be with China. I didn't say it's the closest country to us. Japan is a country with which we identify much more closely because we are democracies together, because we are allied together. Same is true of South, the Republic of Korea. The same is true as Australia and our 28 allies at the NATO alliance where I serve. But a recognition by the Trump administration is very clear that China really matters to the United States and that this relationship has to have some stability to it and it has to have direction to it. <laughs> I'm just going to continue. <laughs> this is a very exciting place to talk. Uh, <laughs> I think in terms of continuity, we can also, <laughs> I, the lights will magically appear at some moment. In terms of continuity, the more aggressive of President Candidate Trump's anti-China campaign threats did not materialize in 2017. There has been no currency war. There has been no trade war. There has been no branding of China as an outcast nation. If you listen to candidate Trump, June 2015, all the way through to election day, one might have thought that China and the United States would have collided, but it did not happen. I think appropriately so, because President Trump understood from day one that if North Korea was his immediate national security crisis, he needed a productive relationship with 
President Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership in order to negotiate his way forward. Clearly, President Trump is subordinating his instinctual prejudices and concerns about trade imbalances and unfair trade practices, and they're laughing at us. That's a constant refrain. The world is laughing at us. He's put it all aside because he understands that the country that has leverage over North Korea, if any country can be said to have leverage, is China. And so you've seen from the very beginning the visit of President Xi Jinping to Mar-a-Lago in the winter and the visit to Beijing, but also the meetings they've had and the phone calls they've had in between, that President Trump deeply understands the importance of China as a factor in North Korea. I actually think, and I'm not someone who routinely says nice and flowery and positive things about Donald Trump, <laughs> and I actually worked for his opponent in the last election in 2016, <laughs> and still think she would be the better president by far, but let me give President Trump his due. I think he's done rather well in his, to form an initial relationship, but I defer to my betters with President Xi Jinping. I think he's clearly signaled respect for the Chinese leadership. And they appear to have, be working at least tactically well together. I don't know if that's true strategically, but it's true tactically. For example, I think there's been more progress in the US-China discussion over how to use sanctions against North Korea in this administration than in the Obama or George W. Bush administrations. The very strong UN Security Council resolution of three months back, mm. I think a year or two ago, China might have abstained or vetoed that resolution. It didn't. The fact that the Chinese Central Bank has at least given written instructions to its constituent banks to wrap up some of the current Chinese lending to North Korean state firms and to not initiate major projects. The fact that at points during 2017, China has withheld some of its normal trade with North Korea. These are signals that the Chinese leadership is frustrated by Kim Jong-un. Doesn't believe that Kim Jong-un has shown the necessary respect for the Chinese leadership. And that Kim Jong-un, well, I'll be, I believe he is rational, and that's important if we think that deterrence can be an answer here, is certainly an agent of disruption. China, I think in all of our estimations, wants to have stable trade relations, wants to have peace in China's part of the world. And so in a way, we're not allies on this issue, but we're partners on the same side of the issue. Now what this has done, however, it's put a lot of eggs, American eggs, in the China basket on North Korea. Because if China slows on sanctions, lifts the pressure on North Korea. The very mercurial President Donald Trump, and we see, I follow him on Twitter every day. I'm an expert. Um, you might see a very different Donald Trump when he, as he talks about the Chinese leadership if he doesn't feel that he's getting that constant support. And if, God forbid, and potentially catastrophically, the United States chooses a preemptive strike on North Korea's nuclear arsenal. Then we have, I think, perhaps the most serious scenario that one can imagine in the US-China relationship. As I understand the Chinese foreign ministry, and having been a uh, foreign ministry spokesperson myself for President Clinton, 
I always take seriously what the Chinese say from their podium. They're a very disciplined, sophisticated government. They do not make formal statements lightly. And as I understand their statement of six to seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago, it is the following. Chinese official statement. If the United States, South Korea, or Japan attack North Korea, China will intervene. They didn't say how, but they would intervene. If, on the other hand, same statement, North Korea initiates action against South Korea, Japan, the United States, China will not. I took that to be a fascinating statement, an important statement, almost dual containment on the part of Beijing <laughs> against the potential warring parties. As a former diplomat, I believe it would be nearly criminal for the United States to initiate military action against North Korea without having tried to talk to the North Koreans first. I believe it's true that not a single member of the Obama or Trump administrations, and I'm, I know it's true about the George W. Bush administration, has ever met Kim Jong-un. I know it's true that we have no strategic dialogue with them now absent episodic contacts with the North Korean mission to the United Nations. I also know it's true that the only American who appears to have any insights whatsoever into the psychology and behavior <laughs> of Kim Jong-un is a pretty good ex-basketball player, <laughs> but probably not the guy, Dennis Rodman, that you want to negotiate uh, a nuclear standoff uh, in the most important tinderbox in the world. Negotiating with North Korea Sitting down to have a strategic discussion is not a gift to the North Koreans. It's a gift to us. We're operating in the blind about the motivations of this young leader and his, the people around him. My experience in war and peace situations in many parts of the world is you have to understand the psychology, the interests, whether the flexibility or lack of it of your interlocutor on the other side, your adversary, Yitzhak Rabin, said famously to justify shaking Arafat's hand on the White House lawn, September 1993, he said, you don't negotiate with your best friends. You negotiate, his words, with very unsavory enemies. And North Korea is an enemy of the United States, potentially a hot enemy of the United States. So I would counsel, because I do think Kim Jong-un displays rational behavior. It's cynical, it's vile, it's opportunistic, it's brutal, it's dangerous behavior. But I at least don't see irrational behavior. So for those who are cheering on from the sidelines, the Trump administration to attack North Korea because he is a wild man, I think that's a misreading and a potentially uh, catastrophic misreading of this situation. I am not saying that I disagree with what Secretary Jim Mattis has been saying. He, he is applying deterrence in his public statements. He's saying to the North Koreans, if you attack South Korea, the United States, Japan, or American forces in Guam, we will respond with overwhelming force. That's the right thing to say to Kim Jong-un. That's what we've been saying since 1953 to his grandfather and father and to him. That is in our right to say it's a matter of survival for the United States and its allies. That deterrence I agree with. But striking out preemptively, unilaterally, without even talking to them, without seeing if there's a negotiation, 
some kind of messy compromise that would steer us well clear of a potential major conventional or nuclear conflict? It just seems to me that's common sense. And in this equation, China becomes a partner of the United States because, and I defer to the three experts, I think China and the United States have some common interests here, not interests that, die, that should hold us apart. If the goal is negotiations, and I suspect for Secretary Tillerson and Secretary Mattis, that's the goal, then China and the United States need to maneuver North Korea towards negotiations of some kind in 2018. That's what's ahead of us. If, on the other hand, the president's determined to strike, then we're in a completely different situation. Where has President Trump, so I think he's done well, President Trump, to give him his due, to at least by today have a fairly productive conversation with President Xi Jinping. Where has the president not done well? Well, there's no sense of overall strategy. <clears throat> I hate to misuse the word that everyone has used, but the president is entirely transactional. You know, you look into your inbox and you just begin to respond to these crises, but where is the overall sense of strategy that we try to teach our students here at Harvard about how you approach this great country, China? President Trump gave away the Trans-Pacific Partnership for nothing. He diminished the strategic position of the United States. He enhanced that of our rival China when it comes to trade and who writes the rules of trade in the 21st century in East Asia and in the Indian Ocean region. It's very unclear to me what President Trump believes about the South China Sea and the East China Sea and China's extravagant and illegal claims of sovereignty in much of the Paracel and Spratly Islands, certainly in the Senkaku, Daiyu Islands, of the East China Sea. No one in the world agrees with China's position but China. Every other nation believes that China has no legal claim following the nine-dash line of what it's asserting. And yet, silence from the President of the United States for 11 months on this key issue that Vietnam and Brunei and the Philippines and Japan believe the United States needs to speak clearly about. It's also unclear if the President's going to push forward, and I think the most important American strategic initiative of the last decade. And that's the formation of a democratic, small d, alignment of interests among India, Japan, and the United States about East Asia. I participated in this as Under Secretary of State. I went to India, Japan frequently, worked with them. But President Bush and President Obama have put us into military alignment with India India is not an ally, but all of its interests are aligned, and with China. And the three of us now are aligning our military strategy, not to fight China, but to prevent what was implicit, if not explicit, in President Xi Jinping's three-and-a-half-hour address in October in Beijing. China pushing out to become the great regional power in Asia. We Americans, reflecting on December 7th, when it began, of 1941, conceive of ourselves and our Asian and Pacific allies as the predominant power and have been since September 2nd, 1945, another seminal date in our history, the surrender of Japan. We have built up an alliance system 
Australia, South Korea, Japan, allies. New Zealand, Thailand, the Philippines, military partners. Over the last decade, the emergence of the American military relationship with Vietnam, and with Malaysia, and with Singapore, and definitely with India, have positioned us not to contest the rise of China, not to act in a, in a discriminatory fashion against China, but to ensure that the rule of law prevails in the South and East China Sea, and that the interests of the democratic nations of Asia, and we are one of them, will be assured, and that China's rise will not weaken what the Japanese, the Indians, the Americans all hold dear. The emergence of that triangular relationship, more American military exercises with India than any other country, the United States and Israel becoming the leader per, leading purveyors of American sophisticated defense technology towards India. The fact that Australia is now beginning to believe that this should be a quadrilateral partnership. Australians resisted this when I was 10 years ago involved in the creation of this relationship. It is not aggressive towards China, but it's meant to guard against the worst impulses of a country seeking a dominant position in Asia. President Trump has been silent on this issue and he needs to speak about this issue. Where has he also not done well? I think he's been far too sycophantic with Xi Jinping. Exhibit A, this extraordinary press conference that the president held in Beijing. Not a effusive, almost over-the-top praise for the person of Xi Jinping. Now, as a diplomat, one must always be respectful, especially when one is a guest. And I would never counsel the president to be disrespectful of the Chinese leadership. But to have a press conference where you embrace the leader of China, and yet you have in previous months spurned and acted disrespectfully towards Angela Merkel and Theresa May and Malcolm Turnbull, when you have this odd situation where the president routinely in his first 11 months praises authoritarian leaders and saves his most vicious barbs on his tweets for the British, Germans, and Australians. We are in new and uncharted and very unwelcome waters in the way that America, the American leader talks about the rest of the world. <clears throat> a respectful thing in Beijing at a presidential press conference would have been a, to listed all of the factors I just listed. Here's where we've made progress. I have great respect for President Xi Jinping. We understand China's interests. No words, however, about the extraordinary crackdown on human rights in China. No words whatsoever about the South and East China Sea crises. No words whatsoever about the fact that Ch the Chinese government has been ripping off the intellectual property of many American firms. I mean, Trump candidate and Trump president seem to be two very different people. I think, it's, I think he's crossed a line here, the president, and he needs to pull back and represent all of America's interests. And I defer to all the China experts here. Do the Chinese respect this kind of sycophantic leadership? I doubt it. I know the Russian psychology probably better in my years dealing with them. They don't respect weakness. I consider this to be weakness. Finally, what do we not know from the trip and from the first year? My big question, I'm going to end on this, 
can President Trump balance the competing interests that we have with China and will have for the next half century, best expressed by the great Ambassador Stephen Bosworth, the late Ambassador Stephen Bosworth, who died two years ago this month. At the end of his career came to um, teach with us at the Belfer Center and the Harvard Kennedy School and his office was directly across from my office and I, have, I had and have enormous respect for Steve. He came into my class, Great Powers, uh, two and a half, three years ago, and here's what he said to our students from all over the world. He said, the big, the big strategic challenge for the Americans is in the 21st century will be this. We need to see China as our great partner in the world. Climate change, stabilizing the global economy, working together to prevent pandemics, just to give you three examples. China's a country with capacity, with vision. It's an efficient country, competent government. So Bosworth said, Ambassador Bosworth, we need to think of China as our partner. But he said, here's the conundrum in the balancing act. China is also our competitor. And he referred to this fact that we Americans believe that our alliance is the predominant factor for stability and power in Asia. And we're going to compete with the Chinese for military predominance in Asia. And Ambassador Bosworth said, how do you balance those two? Have we ever had in American history, maybe we haven't since the War of 1812, when our largest trade partner tried to kill the young American nation, Britain? I think, I'm looking at the historians here, Arnie in particular, do we have to go that far back in American history to find a situation where the greatest world power is critical to our survival, and yet that greatest world power is our potentially greatest competitor for power? And Ambassador Bosworth said this is going to be the most difficult challenge the American people have ever faced. And I stopped him there respectfully in front of my students and said, Ambassador, Professor, do you mean to suggest this is more difficult than the Revolution, the Civil War, and World War II? And he said, Without blinking, he said, yes. And whether you agree or disagree, you have to respect that statement and the challenge it poses to the Americans and the Chinese people. We're going to compete. May we compete peacefully. May we not succumb to a catastrophic global conflict or rivalry. May we learn to work out this balance. I think that's the great challenge. And I would give President Trump on that score an incomplete. <laughs> it's grading time. Some good progress, some extraordinary gaps and unknowns. But I suspect that this relatively harmonious year in US-China relations is heading for choppier and more troubled waters. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Burns, for that um, comprehensive and balanced assessment of where the bilateral relationship stands today and, and of Trump's performance over his first year. Uh, I counted one mixed positive and three negatives. Oh boy. So at Harvard, that's an A. Okay. <laughs> but, but, uh, but this relationship is too important to succumb to great inflation, so I'm with you on the incomplete uh, for the time being. Uh, I'll now invite, if they wish, our three panelists to respond. Uh, if they don't want to, we can, we can move uh, directly to a discussion. Ezra, do you want to? 
I'll be happy to say a few words. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Mike Zoni for setting up this program. I think what happened to the CFIA over the years, that now the WCFIA, is a lot of people concerned with international issues uh, have migrated to the Kennedy School, and in arts and sciences, we have not had a strong interest and a strong faculty concerned with diplomacy, and I think that's been a loss. And I think the effort of Mike Zoni to build those bridges back again, to try to get more people in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences in contact with the people at the Kennedy School concerned with the broader public issues is good for everybody. I hope that we can contribute to them, and I know they can help us provide perspective and also help us think how we can gear our work uh, in a way that would be more useful to those concerned with diplomacy. Uh, I want to thank uh, Nick Burns for coming in, uh, across the divide from the Kennedy School to Arts and Sciences and making this presentation. Uh, it makes me uh, think that it's, it's really sad in Washington uh, that the adults in the room are mostly from the military uh, rather than from the State Department. And uh, I think all of us who uh, now are concerned about national issues have to feel terribly sad the State Department has not given more due, and the people there are not given more respect, and that there are not more adults in the room uh, in Washington uh, who come with Nick's uh, broad background uh, in diplomacy. Um, I remember one thing Fairbanks said one time when we were, I think it was about Nixon. He said, you must remember we only have one president at a time. And uh, even though we want to join uh, in the criticism, of the things that the president does wrong, we still have to live with that and find a way to make the best of it. And I think uh, the role of the university and Harvard at this time to try to provide a balance and perspective uh, is something that uh, is all the more important for a university to do. And I'm so happy that Nick Burns uh, is joining with us in that effort. I wish he were being used better in Washington uh, but still, uh, I think it's our responsibility in this time to try to speak out as clearly and directly as we can. Uh, um, uh, Mike said I could talk up to five minutes, so I thought I'd give in the, my remaining three minutes uh, my, a couple take of longer, <laughs> <laughs> some impressions of a trip I took to China. I got back uh, from a couple weeks traveling in China. Uh, and. Uh, uh, so about a month ago, uh, I, I would my first of all, it's a guess because we, none of us really know Xi Jinping uh, that well. Uh, but I think it's probably true that he does not have that great respect for Trump. Um, one of my Chinese friends uh, said that the Chinese are very good at treating foreigners. Dai ga mao They they are very skilled at uh, flattering uh, foreign people uh, when they they need to. Uh, and they've done a brilliant job. I, I don't think Merkel and some of the Europeans could have done as well. Uh, they, they have more limited uh, ways of relating to people, and I think the Chinese have a broader uh, uh, hand in which they can play and deal with officials. At the same time, of course, they are making evaluations, uh, and if I had to make a guess, uh, they don't have a great deal of respect for uh, Trump. They don't uh, take his Twitters all that seriously except as something has gone through his mind and they look more at uh, the, the levers of power 
and look at what is happening. And I think they have a very cool analysis of those things. Um, several impressions I have, as one who worked on Deng Xiaoping, uh, who tries to look at Xi Jinping, I think Deng Xiaoping had so much more confidence and so much broader background uh, that he didn't need to micromanage thing. And they had set up so, so many small groups that he was personally in charge of, and that he didn't need to have a strict and a tight control in order to have authority over the, the, the country. And uh, I think it's not just Xi Jinping personally. I think there are there must be difficulties in China at this stage of trying to manage things uh, and uh, acquire the authority and to uh, unite the country and prevent it from going the way of the Soviet Union uh, when it broke up and the way uh, Eastern Europe broke up. And I think that's a something that's hanging over them uh, very heavily uh, as they try uh, to cope. <clears throat> um, my intellectual friends in China, of course, are very unhappy with the tightening of controls. Uh, but I think they're, they're more skilled at dealing with this than we intellectuals in the United States would be under certain in those circumstances. Uh, we would find it hard to contain ourselves and would want to express ourselves quite quickly. And uh, they've had long experience uh, with authoritarian leaders, and they know where they have to keep quiet in order to survive. Uh, they know what they can do and who they can talk to. And I don't think that means that more liberal, more open ideas are dead. Uh, I think they're, they're, they're contained and people are more cautious. Uh, but I think there, there's great creativity among intellectuals in China in keeping up with the mood around the world. Uh, after all, uh, when roughly a million Chinese students are studying abroad, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to bring back ideas. Uh, there's a lot of travel between China and the rest of the world. Uh, there's a lot of knowledge of what goes on, and that hasn't gone away, uh, even with the tightening. Um, I also uh, had the sense that a lot of common people in China probably are more happy with the situation in China than most of us Westerners would imagine. I think the rise in the standard of living, the fact they can go to restaurants and see family and travel, uh, has given them a lot more optimism about things than we would guess they would have with all this tightening. Uh, and as one sees, watches the crowds on the streets and talks to people, uh, one can't help have the impression that a lot of people feel that life is pretty good now in China, despite the restraints on intellectuals. Um, also, uh, when I talked to a few people who were close to higher-ups in, in China, they think there's a lot of confidence at the top level in China. They really feel that they have a better system now than we do, uh, that we've elected uh, Trump, uh, and uh, we don't have uh, up-to-date transportation, uh, and that, uh, that China has made much greater progress and that it's working on all the issues. And that by having experienced officials who've uh, first of all, passed examinations and then served in various positions before they rise to the top, that they have a lot of mature, experienced, poised leaders who are really very knowledgeable and can deal with issues, and that that system is going to put them in better shape than we, we are. I personally have some doubts as to whether this tightness is going to be that successful. Um, when you think of what happened at the lower levels now as people 
uh, have to be afraid of what they do and what they say. And they're unwilling to take initiative to solve lots of problems because they're afraid they might be attacked for corruption. It, it, it dampens down the creativity that's existed since reform and opening that has really made it possible for China to do what it can. And I think that as China tries to send their message around the world, uh, when the CCTV uh, hires a lot of wonderful BBC people and uh, very great talent and report quite objectively and give good reports, uh, that uh, of course conveys one message. But when they say on CCTV or in the newspapers uh, about the terrible things that Dalai Lama did and they don't want anybody to see Dalai Lama, and when they, Wu uh, Xiaobo and other internationally famous people are uh, listed as criminals, they just lose all their uh, uh, credibility. So I think it's going to be much harder for China to maintain all that uh, experience. And I, th and I think that the economic growth is going to run into problems. It's going to slow down. And having witnessed uh, Japan uh, uh, went through slowing down and did solve the problems of society quite well at that point, one has to wonder how well China will do while so many people have been pushed aside in these campaigns and while so many people feel frightened whether they will have the social stability and stick to itiveness uh, to survive well in that, that uh, circumstance. So while there is a great deal of pride and, and a great deal of success and the place is moving fast, uh, I think the leaders are probably running somewhat scared and I think understandably. That's my guess. Uh, Professor Brown. Thank you very much. Um, I'm really pleased to be here and see such a good turnout. Um, hopefully I'll be able to shed some, some uh, thoughts and questions primarily for our, our speaker, Professor Burns. Thank you also, um, Michael, Sony, for inviting me to this um, very important topic and, and timely. Uh, so I actually have a couple of questions. Um, having One having directly to do with sort of how you see our relations, particularly this administration's relations thus far, which you have given an incomplete, um, but somewhat positive as well, um, shaping up in the near future, uh, you know, relevant, related to kind of how you might view the Chinese leadership um, in, in the Xi Jinping administration, but also Hu Jintao, if that view has changed, especially particularly towards North Korea and how North Korea would play into um, our relations with the Chinese. Okay, so sort of can you differentiate uh, a, a sort of administrative, administration differences in, in China vis-a-vis -vis their relationship with the United States and going forward? The second question has more to do with the role, the, the pivotal role, I would argue, of South Korea and the Korean Peninsula in general. Um, historically, as we all know, it's, it's, uh, the peninsula has always been sort of the, the place where wars have been started, at least in the last couple of centuries, and it seems that that's precisely potentially what we are debating right now, um, hopefully not. But um, my question to you is specifically how do you see, um, I, I think you're absolutely right that the South, whether you're South Korean government or U.S. government, that we, uh, from a diplomatic standpoint, need to 
really understand the internal um, rationale that drives and makes the North Korean regime tick. I, I can't, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. On the, on the other side of it though, from kind of a democracy, um, you know, clearly we have had now several decades of um, democratization and consolidation in both South Korea and Taiwan, I would, I would add. And so wondering kind of how does that you know, strong alliance, um, particularly between South Korea and the US, shape um, the Trump administration sort of relationship going forward with China, given that, as you mentioned so precisely, they, Trump was very silent on the issue of things like human rights and, and, and so on, accountability, transparency. So those are my thoughts and questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Professor Westhead. Thank you. So just to get a, a discussion going on this, we've uh, heard through Ambassador Burns' wonderful introduction and through the comments that come later, a bit about the various bilateral relationships that the United States engages in in Eastern Asia. So I wanted to look at the region as a whole and ask the broader question, is what we are seeing today a larger power shift that's going on within, within Eastern Asia? that it's not just about Trump, that it's not just about elections in the United States or the re reception of current US policy on the Eastern Asian side, but that there is something much broader going on uh, that we are looking at. And I just wanted to propose that, and then we can have a discussion about it. And if that is the case, I think it is much more because of what happens in this country, in the United States, than because of what happens in China, in terms of attitudes that go much uh, further than, than just what you see in the, in the recent election uh, of the United States' relationship to the, to the outside world. So I, I have the, the advantage of being a Waigora and a, a foreigner, both in the United States and China. So I can speak. <laughs> it's much easier for me to try to say, okay, you know, we look at this in, in, in the big picture, but very often I've found in the past I get it wrong. So take what I'm saying today with, with a number of pinches of salt. So I think the sense that the United States is going to stay involved in Eastern Asia at the level that it has been involved since 1945 seems to be a losing proposition. It is not something that a lot of Americans would be willing to support in the future, given what it would cost and given the orientation towards what's happening within this country that you see among a very, very broad group of American voters. Not just on the side of those who supported Trump in the last election, but also very deep inside the Democratic Party. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think one point on this, Nick, is of course that uh, your candidate as well said that she would withdraw from the TPP. It wasn't just the, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just Trump who said that. Whether she would have done it or not is of course another matter, as we all as we all know. Now this is being perceived very acutely within the Eastern Asian region. And on this, there has been a sea change over the last year, that other countries see the United States as gradually withdrawing from Eastern Asia. Not fully, not totally, but that this is the start of a process that is unlikely to disappear. So it's not just a Trump blip, but it's a more long-term uh, re reconfiguration of power within the, within the region. Uh, Japan, India, the bigger countries, with the relationship to the region are seeing this. Um, they are, of course, responding in their own way, which is basically through rearming and to thinking about their own security first. Smaller countries do what they have to do, 
which in almost all cases, the exception for, for exceptional reasons in South Korea, means conforming to some future constellation in which China will be the predominant power within the region. This is not a completed process, but it is a process that seems to have begun and seems to be moving, and this is my final point, much, much, much more quickly than anything, than anyone would have foreseen um, just a, a, a few years ago. And it's that that worries me. It's not so much the reconfiguration of power in Eastern Asia. I think there are very profound reasons, both here and within the region itself, that the level of predominance that the United States has had since 1945 in the region would gradually disappear. But the emphasis is on gradually. What we are seeing today is a power shift that's happening much more quickly than anyone would have foreseen and that most people, myself included, would be comfortable with. And if we want to go back and try to learn from history, uh, as our colleague Graham Ellison has been pointing out and others have been pointing out, that's where the danger lies. It's not necessary, and on this I, I actually would say that even Graham goes too far, it's not necessary, uh, I would say, uh, to imagine that all power shifts end in cataclysmic war. But power shifts that happen very rapidly and very, in very unforeseen terms have a tendency over a long period of time, and we've seen many examples of this, to end in wars and conflicts. So this is my big worry with what is happening at the moment. Not that there is a, a reconfiguration of power taking place in which Trump plays his role, but not the decisive role, but that things are moving so quickly that we could end up in territory in which it would be very, very difficult to, to keep the peace within what is today the crucial region of the world. Um, thank you very much to all the uh, discussants for their comments. And there were quite a few questions raised. Nick, do you want to respond to some of these questions? Let me try to do that very quickly because we want to get to questions and comments from the audience. But I do want to, these are my colleagues, and I want to be respectful of what they've said. Um, do we see a difference in Washington between Hu Jintao and Xi Jinping? Yes. I, mean, I think both the Democrats and Republicans, President Obama, President Trump, have seen that under Xi Jinping, China is, since 2012, much more assertive. Uh, in defending Chinese interest, that there is a strategy uh, in the region to project Chinese power, that this represents a challenge to the American alliance and to the United States itself. But we also see that Xi Jinping is looking for a partnership, even joint venture partnership, with the United States, witness 2014-15. I thought, very first Chinese-American joint venture, uh, climate change. And then to throw that away when President Trump came in, along with TPP, but to throw the US-China leadership role was a great missed opportunity. We have to learn to kind of, we have to learn to work together, share space together, define a big global objective together, mitigate climate. This could have been a very positive, long-term Beijing-Washington project thrown away by President Trump. I blame him for that. Um, but we do perceive that President Xi is challenging the U.S. alliance system. It, 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 it's dema it demands a response from the United States. I'd say very quickly on South Korea, the 
president, while he's handled China well, has been much less effective on, on South Korea. He's been openly disrespectful to President Moon, accused President Moon in a tweet of appeasement. I mean, we've never seen this kind of behavior from an American president before. It's very disturbing, it's disrespectful, it undermines the South Korean leadership at a critical time. Plus you openly, President Trump openly questions the FTA, the free trade agreement with South Korea. I mean, you're, you're offering these bouquets to Kim Jong-un unwittingly through your tweets. We need to be, listen to the South Korean government, listen to the South Korean people. They wanna see an attempt at diplomacy before the United States turns to force. I would just say that Prime Minister Abe wins the global prize for handing, having handled Trump best. <laughs> Combination of flattery and golf. <laughs> have defended Japanese interests. Abe is never maligned by Trump tweets. Abe is never the object of disrespect by Trump. Japan has a unique voice. I'm happy about this because I really value Japan as an ally of the United States. I think we should always lead with Japan and Asia. Trump, I think, is doing so for the wrong reasons, but with the right result. <laughs> and finally, let me just say, the White House bumper sticker from the trip to Asia was, we're in the Indo-Pacific. These are my friends in India who have always wanted to call the Arabian Sea, the Bay of Bengal, and the Western Pacific, the Indian the Indo-Pacific, I actually like it because it conveys a sense that the st complete strategic picture must include India. And I actually think it's the right change by the Trump administration. I agree with Arnie. We're seeing a leveling of American power, but I don't think we'll ever disappear. We are an Asia-Pacific country. And so in many ways, you may see that the strength of the United States in the next decade is not what it was in the past. But I think in combination with Japan, South Korea, India, we can represent the interests of the democratic countries. And, and that would be fine. I mean, that would not be problematic. It, it, is, the, it is what is happening now in terms of the speed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we've heard about uh, a number of short-term ruptures about some longer-term changes, and then about some continuities. I want to put forward a proposition and just get the feedback of the panelists about another continuity. Uh, both Jiang and, and Nick, you touched on, on human rights and the um, uh, uh, pressing of China on uh, what we would call universal values, what the Chinese call American values. Um, the, the, uh, one could argue that this is, there's, there's actually a great deal of continuity uh, in, the, in the Trump administration in the sense that presidential candidates attack China on human rights and presidents dial it back. That certainly uh, uh, can be traced back into the 1980s, perhaps even earlier. I can't think about, about uh, the, the elections in the 70s. Um, is, is there anything different here or is this simply a social media era version of a very familiar dynamic in American domestic politics and in the U.S.-China relationship as a result? I would just say that um, these are universal values we're talking about. These are not American values. Read the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. Read the United Nations Charter. China has signed up to these words and must be held accountable to them. Now, the, 
Michael, you're right. It's always difficult when you're in power. I found this personally. How do you balance this? You need, there are lots of issues where we need to work productively with China, and then there's these divisive issues. There has to be a balance. Sometimes one half the equation is given greater emphasis than the other half of the equation. Here's the problem. Under the Trump administration, and listen to Secretary Tillerson's public statements, human rights is missing. There is no emphasis. There's not even a mention of democracy and human rights. I think that's the problem. I, I just want to briefly say that I, I think that on the one hand, there's certainly um, contradictions in the administrations, um, namely by the people he's surrounded by, no mention of issues important as human rights. On the other hand, um, Trump can sort of, in, in this case, I'm sort of thinking about our presence in, in the Philippines. And kind of Philippines clearly has been a democracy. And, 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 but with the current Duterte administration, somewhat of a challenge. But I think that here's where the president can actually perhaps, um, how shall I say this, engage and work with him um, to bring out these issues more, maybe, more diplomatically, more quietly, more sort of behind the scenes. Uh, it's just speculation. But um, I don't think we have to see it all as sort of a zero-sum situation, necessarily. I think with the change in power uh, that Arnold Westad has talked about, I think there's more realization in this country that uh, our preaching to China on these issues uh, is not going to have much positive impact. Uh, I think there are things that we can do to show where we stand. I think there was a lot of optimism and furor after Tiananmen incident uh, 89, that we could stand up uh, for values and push China uh, to do things. I think that now we have to recognize that our ability to do, do so is, is very limited. Uh, but we can still uh, stand for our principles and speak our principles, uh, and I think that does have a certain impact. All right, you want to comment? No? Okay. Um, let me let me shift gears a little bit. I want to draw together. There, I want to draw together two paradoxes that were mentioned. Uh, Nick, you mentioned the paradox that America uh, is closely uh, entangled with its greatest strategic competitor. Is that you're comfortable with that formulation of your paradox? Um, and Ezra, in your remarks, you hinted at, although you didn't state it as such. Something that's really curious. So that one paradox is complicated enough. But we've got a, a paradox, I think, in China domestically as well, which is that the Chinese leadership, I think you were hinting at this and I think you're absolutely right, is simultaneously uh, growing more and more confident and more and more nervous. <laughs> nervous domestically, nervous about issues of political legitimacy, uh, nervous about how to maintain economic growth. And then there are the longer nervousness, the, de the demographic nervousness and so on. Um, this is a, top, a, top, a complicated question, but any thoughts on how these two paradoxes might intersect, either in policy or in outcome? I think that's a, it's a great question, and I do think that is a, a very <clears throat> great paradox. They, I think they feel that their system is now the best possible system, <clears throat> and that China will grow in its influence around the world and that uh, China domestically will still improve and deal with a lot of the issues. And yet there is a lot of concern about the brittleness of their situation. 
whether some of the family and friends of people who criticized uh, might uh, be prone to, to take some action, whether money will flow overseas, whether a lot of their talent will stay overseas and not want to come back. Will all the people who sign the statements of loyalty and read very carefully all the new documents by Xi Jinping, uh, whether they would really internalize those or whether if there were other opportunities uh, after the second term, they might much prefer to have somebody else uh, in power or whether if he uh, tries to keep power by keeping influence on another person instead of doing the third term, whether that person would follow him. There, there are a lot of questions and a lot of nervousness, uh, even though there is an overview uh, of optimism and confidence. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on, on that. So whenever I'm here, I think about China as having a far superior system in most respects, better, better roads, better railways, better governance. And then I go to China and I discover that, you know, the United States has its problems but they pale in comparison to the problems in terms of governance, in terms of accountability, in terms of social equity, in terms of justice, et cetera, et cetera, that China has, right? So we mustn't make that mistake. I mean, I think it's very important, particularly for the young Americans and the young Chinese who are here today, to believe that the decline that I see, which is a relative decline on the US side, means that that's a confirmation that China has got most things right. Uh, international affairs are not like that. Uh, first and foremost, it's very unlikely, in my view, that we are moving towards any kind of bipolarity in the US-China relationship, the way we had a bipolar world for some time between the United States and, and the Soviet Union. If anything, we are moving away from forms of bipolarity. But it's also this, this mistake in logic, which is one that many of you would, would have learned through your, your studies here at Harvard, I hope that the fact that something is not good in one place doesn't necessarily mean that it's better somewhere else. So these are not uh, the same kinds of challenges. They are, they are different kinds of challenges. But believing that uh, people anywhere, including in China itself, would draw the uh, conclusion from the governance problems in the United States that China has hit the jackpot in terms of how it governs itself, I think would be a bad mistake. Uh, on the contrary, I think one of the things just like Ezra said, one of the things we have to look for in terms of what happens in China over the next half decade is whether the Communist Party at all can get out of its current governance dilemmas towards the end of Xi Jinping's period in power without tearing itself apart. That's a, that's a big question. I, I don't know what the answer to that question is. But compared to that, even the Trump phenomenon in this country pales in, in comparison. I would just offer a thought to agree with Arnie, Professor Westad, that a lot of this might come down to the conversation that the American people need to have, that we have in the Democratic Party on the left wing, very kind of anti-US global engagement, if you think of Bernie Sanders and even our friend, former colleague Elizabeth Warren, versus the more traditional Clinton, Gore, Biden, Kerry approach that we have to lead. On the Republican Party, the conservative consensus, people like Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, well, they're now being assaulted from the right by Steve Bannon, saying America should come home, no more global engagement, we're overextended. So in both political parties, there is no consensus right now that the U.S. should retain its global leadership. I interviewed Condoleezza Rice in August of this year at an Aspen Strategy Group event, and 
she said, we've lost our self-confidence about this leadership role. I think she's right. We have to rediscover that self-confidence. We can't retire from the world in the 21st century. Thank you very much. Uh, thank, thank you for those, those wonderful comments. I, on the, on the um, issue of whether we're moving towards bipolarity, um, I'm guessing that because no one took you up on it, there was no one willing to disagree with you on that, on that score. I do, I'm not sure that that position is widely shared in China. Um, the new model of great power relations. relations was a trial balloon intended to test out, I think, intended to test out American response to the possibility of a bipolar world order. Um, so if there are two... Oh, go ahead. But there's absolutely no doubt that a fairly large number of people in China believe and think with enormous pride that we might be moving towards a bipolar world. But what I read in that is first a healthy recognition, going back to what Nick said earlier on, of the actual existing US power in the world, right? They're not thinking, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase, uh, China as number one, at least not yet, right? The United States is still up there. It's, it's, it's measuring oneself against the United States that really, that really matters. But also, of course, all of my Chinese friends who would think in this way, and there are some who do, not many, um, the moment they switch to talking to me about what the challenges are for China, it becomes very difficult both for them and me to see China's global rise you know, as, as, uh, as an unavoidable phenomenon going into the future. And I think it's, so this is really addressed to the American part of the audience here. I think it's very important to realize that. I mean, there is not what the you know, Germans would call a jubelfest. You know, it's not a kind of uh, understanding that China is rising from here to, to eternity that characterizes most uh, kitchen table conversations among people who have some knowledge about what goes on in Beijing. There, there is, instead, there is, as Ezra pointed out, this deep uncertainty about what the future is going to be. Mike, very quickly, can I just agree, can I agree with Arnie mm -hmm. that I think if you asked most senior Republicans and most senior Democrats, people who could be former, future presidents or secretaries of state or defense, they would say, we need to construct in this century a global balance of power where we favor the rise of India and the continued power of Europe as balancers against the authoritarian powers. Indeed, I think most estimates are that by the end of this century, India will have the largest global economy, not China, not the United States. So it's in our interest to be aligned with the Republic of Korea, with these ascendant countries, India, South Korea. And I think Europe is gonna be stronger than people think for many decades to come. That's the American firmament in the global balance of power. And that's why I raised the earlier question about is there, there's a sort of inherent contradiction that it would be interesting to see if the administration, the president re reverses in my viewpoint because of the point you just made about yeah. sort of it's based on open trading, right? But yet he's saying America first, or at least he was. I don't know where it's going. But so that's, I think that's the kind of the, pivotal role of South Korea, and among other nations. Ezra. Well, let me wear another hat that I wear. Um, I grew up in a uh, small town, central Ohio, which is very strong Trump country. And I have uh, more optimism about the United States than maybe, maybe Arne does. Uh, because if you look at the Pew polls uh, coming out of Chicago, mm -hmm. people still want you know, America to take an active part in international trade. Uh, we still have, you know, great universities, great research centers, dynamic businesses. 
uh, and we still have a lot of uh, ideas that are still very popular around the world uh, where Chinese ideas are not yet that popular, except economic power. Uh, China has economic power and leverage and a kind of can-do government to uh, get some things done. But um, I think that some of these comments uh, uh, may underestimate the residual strength that America has and that we hope will uh, come back uh, in some new administration. Thank you very much. I would like to now uh, take the last few minutes to throw the, the floor open to questions, um, of which I'm sure there are many. Uh, please uh, uh, either put up a hand. Nick, are you able to take microphones? So just put up your hand. And, and uh, as I always say at these events, a lot of people want to speak. Questions, not speeches, please. That hand over there was the very first. Hi, my name is Shota. I'm studying international relations. I'm getting my master's here. And my question is, uh, um, an environment of small business innovation can be viewed as a soft power, which is on the decline in the US. So my question is, what are some of the ways to strengthen US small business environment so that it is emulated in China? Because of the time, I'm wondering maybe we'll collect a couple of yep. questions and then give you a chance to respond to them all. Uh, Philip in the back, and then uh, this gentleman here, and then maybe that gentleman there. I'm, I'm Philip Lukova, Belfast Center. Um, just a, a very quick comment uh, about the Europeans not, not being very nice to President Trump. There's one exception, President Macron of France, who welcomed him for the, the military parade, but uh, that didn't lead to anything, really. Uh, my, my question to everyone, really, uh, thank you very much for a great uh, presentation. Is there, on especially, is there any specific uh, withdrawal, uh, American withdrawal from Asia, or is it just not a complete withdrawal from, from foreign policy? I mean, you know, take Europe, the Middle East, and I'm just wondering whether the Indo-Pacific uh, discourse uh, in particular is not just a way to ignore, uh, you know, China, Korea, and other countries that in fact uh, still play a role and in fact, uh, Asian countries seems to, to do very well without the United States. If, if you take uh, TPP-11, as uh, there's another name for that, but, but the, 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 basically the TPP countries getting together without the United States. Um, so I'm just wondering whether you can elaborate further. Thanks. Okay, well, two, two, two more quick questions. This gentleman here and then this gentleman here. Okay, uh, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, my question is for Professor Burns. Uh, so has the U.S. government for the past 20 years ever serious thought about initialize a bilateral talks with North Korea? If yes, why didn't happen? Uh, and then from the gentleman here. Hi. Um, regarding North Korea, again, uh, what do you think is the best case scenario for a diplomatic resolution? And Second question-ish, uh, do you think that Japan and or South Korea will seek independent nuclear deterrence given the American creeping withdrawal from the region or at least the less predictable behavior in a more bipolar or even multipolar world? Thank you for those great questions. Uh, Arna has to teach it too, yes. Yes. so I think we'll proceed uh, in this direction and, and I apologize on his behalf in advance if he has to run out. No, I apologize on my own behalf. Uh, but <laughs> let, me just, let me just do two of these very, very, very quickly. So 
if there is a US withdrawal from Eastern Asia, what does it consist of? Well, it consists first and foremost of what Nick Burns laid out in his presentation. It, it is in terms of the relationship that exists between the US, uh, the, the current US administration, and the ones that it really should be working with. Uh, much more intensely than we saw, in my view, even under the Obama administration, right? So what this, what this administration is doing is the opposite, to try to, it seems to me, drive some of its logical allies away from it. Now, that's what sends a very powerful signal. So what I was saying in my initial comments is that's seen within the region as a symptom, I think, of these underlying reasons why the United States is withdrawing, which has to do with economic nationalism, which ha has to do with a de-emphasis of, of collective military security, mm -hmm. which has to do with the problems that exist at home. I mean, the, 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 the America first form of thinking uh, coming, coming to the fore. So I think that's very, very important. I mean, to realize that the perceptions of this, if you put it together in a lot of, of, of Eastern Asian countries, and here I would, by the way, include India, which is deeply uncertain today about where the United States wants to go in its relationship that, that Ambassador Burns was crucial in, in building back in the, back in the 2000s. Um, so on this other question of, of North Korea, just, just, just very, very quickly. Again, I think Nick laid this out very well in his uh, introductory remarks, and Ye Young uh, followed up on it. The only alternative to some kind of disaster on the Korean Peninsula at the moment is negotiations. It's some, for, some form of talking. Um, uh, we've gotten too far now to just sit back and believe that status quo will somehow sort itself out. Um, there's every reason to believe, based on everyone that I'm speaking to, not least from the South Korean side, mm -hmm. who have insight into what is happening in the North, that we are getting awfully close to the moment when war could happen more or less by accident. I mean, there are things that are going on at the moment that really scare me stiff in that relationship. And the only antidote to that is to start some form of conversations. It doesn't have to be, you know, not just at this point talking about back to the six-party negotiations. That will be a long process if, it, if it's ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about uh, direct uh, contacts between the United States and North Korea. I think that is, that is what is needed at the moment. Jiang, do you want to make some comments? Just briefly, I, I think um, I don't have an answer to the gentleman who asked that question. Um, but I do think the answer lies in sort of this sort of cautious, um, you know, long-term view of our relationship with any of these countries that we're talking about and concerned. But the fact that the Chinese thinks Korea is in play, and certainly South Korea's current administration's sort of frustration and response to the so-called quadrilateral dialogue, you know, um, this time around again, are, are, are sort of critical facts, I think, that this administration can factor into in thinking about um, whether there's going to be a grand strategy level, um, back to six-party talks, four-party talks. I, I'm not so um, optimistic about that, but maybe someone else has a different viewpoint. Thank you. Ezra? Um, th this is a place where I have a chance to express my opinion a lot, so I'd like to pass my time to Nick. <laughs> That was a major mistake, because we'd rather hear from you. Um, Philippe Lecor has asked a very good question about Asia. I would just say that the United States is not with, going to withdraw from Asia. The permanence and the commitment to Japan, South Korea, Australia, it's there. 
It's not disappeared from the Congress. Even Donald Trump and his administration have honored it and will continue to honor it. But we've been hurt by the TPP decision because our credibility is at stake there. And we've passed up a major attempt to try to work with the Chinese to move them towards a more um, consistent position on intellectual property. Uh, Larry Summers, Madeleine Albright, and I went to China a few years ago on an Aspen meeting. I remember we met two members of a standing committee, and even then they did not say to us, they assumed TPP was going ahead. And the question the Chinese had for us, same question the Indians have is, at what point can China join? At what point can India join? That was the leverage we had to insist on fair trade practices, and the president just gave it away with no corresponding benefit. But we're not gonna disappear from Asia. We are an Asia Pacific country. It would deny the whole weight of the west coast of the United States in our economy and society. Last point I'd make, we'll end on North Korea. Yes, the United States sought direct bilateral conversations with North Korea, 2006, seven, and eight, in the administration that I served in, uh, one of them, the Bush administration. We produced an agreement with North Korea, which the North Koreans have then violated substantially. Uh, this is the, the agreement negotiated by Condoleezza Rice. So we were, we're in the habit of talking to them, mainly in New York in those days. This was all public. Uh, but we have no contacts now that I can see, uh, at least that are visible, and that's a very dangerous situation to be in. I think the best solution is deterrence, continued sanctions against North Korea, clarity that we will defend South Korea, Japan, and our own forces if attacked, but a willingness to see if negotiations, and the emphasis on the word if, can be productive. Here's where China, if we, ever, if we get to the table, China will be at the table with us, with Japan, with South Korea. It's gonna be a multi-party agreement. And here's where China will be tested. If that's the scenario we get in 2018 to negotiations, will China use its influence for good to pressure the North Koreans to agree to some kind of compromise to reduce the temperature and take us off this track that we're on? And I would agree very much with Professor Vestad that the danger here is miscalculation as it was in 1914. It's miscalculation. You don't want to go to war, but you stumble into it. That's a we would be blind to history if we didn't uh, assume that that's one of the great dangers we're facing now. So I do think that 2018 will be a consequential year for the United States and China on the North Korea issue and for this whole issue of the global, the regional balance of power in the Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, excuse me. Thank you. Uh, I've... Thanks very much. I wish I could say there was darkness and now there is light. It was true of the physical plant, but these issues are too complicated. But I do want to thank all of our participants today, and in particular, Professor Burns, for illuminating these complex and important issues. Uh, it's, uh, uh, these are too important for those of us at the university not to do our best to try to better understand and share our knowledge. So thank you all for joining us, uh, and thank you again to our participants for a great event. Thank you.